Paper Book about Doctor Who was the Time Traveller's Guide. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer James Gent. James, what are you up to and where can we find it? At the moment, um, my main ongoing work is um, the website We Are Cult, um, which obviously you're no strange to. That can be found at wearecult.rocks, and we've also got a Facebook and Twitter presence. I'm also co-editor of a um, David Bowie anthology that is due to come out sometime later this year that has been co-edited with uh, John Arnold, who some of you listeners may know. Okay, well, without any more ado, let's get into your first choice, because I'm going to be honest about this. There wasn't very much that I could really use as a clip to illustrate this. And when you find out what it is, you're going to realise why. same time and I really really had to although it's very short edit that before the presenter came in there's a very good reason for that James what's that the theme from that is the theme from the Golden Oldie Picture Show which was a BBC series from 1985 a very high concept series basically the idea was creating videos for um, pop songs of the old yesteryear from the 60s and 70s before the pop video was supposedly invented I mean we're talking about the time here when every article about the pop video said there was no such thing until Bohemian Rhapsody in 75 <laughs> and it was I suppose you can only describe it as of its time in the sense that the 80s was quite an interesting thing because um, that, I guess, is when sort of 60s pop culture was being quite aggressively remarketed and repackaged after having been kind of ignored throughout the 70s, which was always about the next big thing, you know. I think I would have been about 10 or 9 when it was on air. And so, unfort- well, fortunately, unfortunately, depending how you look at it, a lot of my first encounters with a lot of, quotes, classic 60s pop numbers was uh, through these quite weird um, and sometimes over-literal sort of visual reimaginings of tracks by the likes of the crazy builds of Arthur Brown, The Move, Procol Harum, Dave D, I can never say this, Dave D and the rest of them, as you can touch. And it was hosted by Dave Lee Travis, who is pretty much, you know, one of Radio One's kind of middle names for mediocrity back in the 80s, wasn't he, really? And it was all a bizarre setup because he was, it was, a, it was the kind of that kind of uh, proto Alan Partridge presenting by um, studio-bound Logfire. Not unlike sort of Tales of the Unexpected. Well, I remember watching this. I remember everyone watching it. But the thing I didn't realise at the time was half these songs, like you say, did actually have videos of a kind. I mean, I remember, you know, things... I remember the Strawberry Fields Forever, which the over-literal thing, it was just some people picking and eating strawberries. You know, Strawberry Fields Forever had one of the most famous promo films ever. Things like Ha Ha Said the Clown by Manfred Mann, where they did a very scary thing for that. That had one. It was a conceit that they didn't have videos before then. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, but I mean, some of the ones they did come up with, as you say, there's a very sort of clicking, stamped, literal approach to some of them. The, yeah, so they sort of stick in your memory, but for kind of all the wrong reasons, if you know what I mean. There's a sense in which the Golden Oldie Picture Show sticks in people's memories for the wrong reason now anyway, but let's skirt over that. But the one that I remember starting to smell a rat with it was, they did the Christmas one where they did all Christmas number ones, which yeah, of course meant they had to have Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix, which didn't really fit with the Christmas theme. And also they did a bizarre kind of video based around past the parcel with a bomb with lots of people 
passing it to each other across London, which was really weird. But they had Grandad by Clive Dunn. You'll never guess how they illustrated that. It was Clive Dunn as Grandad being Grandad. I remember sitting there thinking, they probably did want exactly the same at the time, because I'd seen the film for Ernie by Benny Hill by then. I thought, they must have one that they did that was like this. Why are they making a new one? I mean, some some of that, like rewatching, I, I was quite impressed by the ambition of some of them, and they did sort of bring a lot of things flooding back. There's a really good one for um, Flowers in the Rain by The Move, which basically depicts a man having a kind of um, high-speed motion breakdown in a mental hospital. And um very bizarre one for A Whiter Shade of Pale, which is kind of a sort of cross between The Prisoner and Test Match Special. <laughs> but there was one that absolutely terrified me. It was um, the video for Ben Me, Shake Me, which I think is Amen Corner. Oh, wasn't that just bodybuilders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really over literal interpretation. But the weirdest one I saw when I was revisiting the clips on YouTube was one for Lola by the Kinks. There's no subtext in the video at all. It's exactly as you'd imagine. And the weirdest thing about it is it's got the kind of uh, the person in it playing, you know, the titular character. I'm sure it's Michael Feast, who is quite a sort of well-known character actor that sort of turns up in a lot of things but isn't really a household name. And God knows how many other jobbing actors that might be, you know, turning up doing bits of it when they're not in, um, you know, the Hot Shoes show or whatever it was called. It was just a very, very strange programme during a time when 60s stuff was just being recontextualised. I mean, it's about the same time as the whole curse of the sort of 80s ad jingle. I mean, when I think about most sort of 60s pop, most of my first introductions were either from these really weird videos or things like, I mean, when you think of the um, Rolling Stones, not fade away, I just think of, you know, that animation of a bloke trying to sell you Scott videotapes, you know. A bloke, a skeleton, come on. Skeleton, let's, yes, let's not <laughs> There's something about the way that in the 80s, these shows and adverts were kind of repurposing 60s pop in these kind of quite naff ways, I'm sure quite far from the maker's intentions. It kind of put me off exploring the views of that decade because... This is the way I was receiving it, do you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean, because the 60s full stop, even despite the attempts to, you know, do nostalgia things based on flower power and Beatles anniversaries and so on, was seen as quite naff into, I would say, the early 90s. I remember when I first started DJing, if you were from Liverpool, you weren't supposed to like the Beatles at that point, because... You know, it was so overpowering, the atmosphere saying, you like this, that you kind of rebelled and thought, no, I don't. But I got really, really into kind of the mid-period stuff in the late 80s. When I started DJing, I used to play things like Good Morning, Good Morning a lot. And people were laughing, people were actually openly laughing. And then a couple of years later, the Beatles, suddenly the coolest band in the world again. So there was this naff taint to it. And I think things like the Golden Oldie Picture Show didn't help. I mean, the other one for me was, I mentioned before, the rock and roll years, which that kind of took it in completely the other way. It made things seem a bit too serious. Like the thing I always mentioned is they always use, whenever there's footage of 60s unrest, they play Incense and Peppermints by Strawberry Alarm Clock over the top of it. I think that didn't help either, but... There was, like you say, this kind of real, desperately tragic unhipness seen around 60s pop then, which was really quite unfair. I think it's like kind of shorthand kind of approach. It's very much like a bluffer's guide. I mean, maybe even when the South Bank show did that Velvet Underground um, retrospective in 86, you've got a brief nod towards the flower power scene. Of course, you get blasted by a few seconds of flowers in your hair. You know, it's all this kind of shorthand, isn't it, that uh, really kind of doesn't really kind of undersells a lot of the actual kind of, the real kind of social context of the time. And we all know about 
nine times out of ten, if you're watching a documentary at 60, you get the clip of the guy buying a military jacket and Granny takes a trip. It's all that sort of thing, isn't it? It is, but I'm hoping that you'll give me a good link into your next choice when I ask you this question. If you revived the Golden Oldie Picture Show and you had to pick one record from the 60s to make a promo film for, what would you pick? I would probably go for My White Bicycle. That's a really good choice, but I was hoping you'd say The Laughing Gnome, because it would, it would take us into your next choice, which most certainly did have a video. That's David Bowie, and I don't actually know that song. I'm not surprised you don't know it. James, tell us what that was and why people won't recognise it. Yeah, that track was uh, When the Wind Blows by David Bowie, and it genuinely is one of those songs that no one would really be familiar with on account of it being not as well known as, as the film is actually derived from. I think it only reached number 44 in the charts, and there's a number of reasons for that. I guess because it's quite a hard sell. A song from a film about nuclear war. Well, having said that, there's an awful lot of songs from the 80s that were pretty much apocalyptically inspired and did very well. Um, you know, 99 Red Balloons, Strawberry Switchblade, Dance All Over by Captain Sensible. But as anyone's familiar with When the Wind Blows will know, it's not a film that really pulls any punches. I mean, we're not talking about Threads-type documentary realism. In fact, I think it's more hard-hitting than Threads because takes the form of an animation and it's based on a graphic novel and both those things were kind of seen as very much aimed at kids not adults at the time you know before we had this kind of a new respectability for those mediums Bowie's track is interesting to me because as anyone knows me even slightly knows I'm a big fan of Bowie but I'm also kind of an advocate of the areas of his back catalogue that I feel are generally underrated and underpraised because they don't really fit in the narrative you know what i'm talking about the kind of official narrative of career which is basically you know everything he did after scary monsters or let's dance you know it's only just applicable it's generally seems um nothing really of any interest um fortunately that seems to be turning around quite a bit you know but um when the wind blows is right in there i mean it's only a couple of months after absolute beginners which you know was his biggest hit you know until um where are we now it's the number two chart single and you know, he was still riding high, I guess, on, um, you know, the exposure he had from Live Aid as well. It's roughly about the same time as Labyrinth, which itself wasn't a big hit at the time. But as a piece of music, it's probably slightly more accomplished than um, Magic Dance. <laughs> I know there's at least one person listening who'll be shouting at their MP3 player now. It's an odd little thing, because at the time, you know, obviously he made two albums that generally considered his worst. Again, that one listener is going to be playing, but we're talking about tonight's Never Let Me Down. But around the same time, even though his heart obviously wasn't making full-length albums, it seems whenever we'll come up and say, you know, Dave, um, I'm going to write a film theme tune, you know, he'd come out with something really great, like Cat People, This Is Not America, Absolute Beginners already mentioned. And, um, you know, this one pretty much just himself and... Um, the guy, this guy called Il Kizilke, um, Turkish multi-instrumentalist, who, um, who kind of do all his demos before he took them to Niles Rogers to get, you know, prettied up. It's one of those tracks. It's kind of a gateway to Tim Machine and then his 90s renaissance. I mean, sonically, 
it's very much a precursor to things like the title track of Outside. It's, you know, it's got very minimal guitar and electronic drums arrangement. It's not dissimilar to the um, version of Back in Anger he did a couple of years later, which, um, you know, is definitely ground zero for Tim Machine because you've got Bruce Gabrels making his debut with Bowie. I'm starting to sound like an audiobook of the Nick Pegg completely <laughs> Well, was Erdl on the updated look back in anger? Because there was some talk of him joining Tim Machine initially. So yeah. it really is a through line, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely one of those kind of precursors. I guess that along with um, Erdl was also um, pretty much the only musician on Iggy Pop's uh, comeback album, Blah Blah Blah, which also dates from 86. And again, that's you know, not only is that an underrated Iggy Pop album, um, because Bowie's all over it. It's a bit like Need and Lust for Life. You know, he's co- when he's not co-writing, he's co-producing. But it's probably the best album David Bowie never made, especially if you put it side by side with Never Let Me Down. You listen to it and you're like, he gave all those great songs and tunes away and <laughs> left himself with an album, A Time Will Crawl, and not much else. Well, I remember, just on the subject of Blah Blah Blah, that I had that at the time because I really liked his version of Real Wild Child was a single and it was quite a big hit and I got the album. And obviously at that age and at that time, I didn't know you were supposed to think it was a bit naff in terms of classic Iggy. I really liked it as a youngster and I still really like it now. I don't see what the problem is. It's got a lovely sort of stripped down kind of machine pop sort of sound to it. Um, I mean, it's basically, as I say, Bowie. Middle Gazilke, Kevin Armstrong, um, who Bobby also worked with on um, Live Aid and Absolute Beginners, and a drum machine program by David Richards. I mean, that's it. But it's that sound. If you're going to pick an 80s sound, it's probably a lot more easy on the ear than the kind of Never Let Me Down, Everything But Kitchen Sink, Borneo Horns kind of soup. So, yeah, it's a nifty little album, you know. And as I say, I think Bowie wrote some stuff on there in terms of music and lyrics that is um, it's like the song I've chosen, When Wind Blows. It shows, you know, he wasn't bereft of creative inspiration or good ideas. I think it's just heart wasn't into it as a kind of full-time job, you know. I mean, that's why he was turning up in bizarre cameos in John Landis films and things as well. Well, going back to where the wind blows, I mean, I'm, I can't quite work out why it wasn't really a hit. I think probably, like you say, the nature of the film played into it. The film didn't get that wide exposure at the time either. It's a great song, but it's not that radio-friendly. But I think what's more interesting is what's happened since is... You know, it is a great track. It's highly rated by people who know it. He seems to be quite fond of it himself. But as far as I know, the only places it has ever been on at the time of recording, because that may change in the next couple of months, but I think it was a bonus track on Never Let Me Down, which is an album a lot of people will probably avoid in the first place. And on the the best of 80 to 87, which again isn't the best kind of sell for a best of, is it? No, I'm, I'm quite impressed they managed to make that as kind of coherent as it is. I mean, again, I think partly because it does have those film songs that I think were kind of a bit more memorable than um, the likes of, say, you know, Dancing with the Big Boys or uh, Ricochet or Let's Dance. Or Never Let Me Down itself, which I'd never tire of pointing out. It's basically the theme from children's BBC animation, Gram. It's even got the whistling on it. Well, thanks for ruining that for me, Tim. I mean, it's such a stone-cold classic before. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, but it's odd that it turned up on the Never Let Me Down album because, I mean, there's two B-sides on that as well. And again, even though they're not from a vintage year for him, they're probably better than some of the tracks that did end up on the album. So, yeah, the quality control in mid-80s Bowie is all over the place. But that's why I like to kind of play Devil's Advocate because you, know, you can find some interesting stuff going on there, like, you know, well overdue appraisal. OK, well, for your next choice, we're going to jump back a year, yeah? And it's going to be rather mysteriously introduced, because there were no clips I could find for this, by this piece of burbling noise. Okay, well that's the children's BBC introductory sting, version B from 1985, 
all two and a half seconds of it. And the reason to pick that is because this was in common use around the time that the BBC launched a children's magazine called, James? It was called Beeb Magazine. I think it ran for about 20 or so issues between, I think, the first half of 1985, I believe. Yeah, because I was surprised because I remembered it going on for a couple of years but it looks like it was just a couple of months like you say yeah pretty much um and i mean obviously it was um, a failure really but i picked it because um well i just find i'm very interested in the whole history of bbc and its kind of early attempts at, um you know cross-platform marketing as, as we call it now i mean you yourself are you know writing you're very familiar with um bbc records kind of ongoing attempts to market itself um and at the time we're looking at here 85 they were quite adept at aggressively marketing theme songs that invariably Simon May had a hand in. <laughs> but um, magazine-wise, this was, I think it was basically an attempt to kind of do their version of Looking Magazine. It didn't really do much to kind of shake off the BBC sort of image as quite kind of starchy and square and a bit patrician, you know? I mean, we had, I mean the fact that one of the lead comics was um, One by One. Oh, I was going to mention that. That was such... Anyone who doesn't know, when I was a youngster, that program haunted me with its dullness because it had to be on because some of my family watched it it's just about a zoo vet and i think is it the 50s or the 40s and it had an awful parping brass theme tune and it's just kind of oh this animal is ill oh hang on no it's not ill again at the end hooray and what child would want to read a comic strip with in-universe extrapolated adventures from one by one yeah i mean that was just like i mean i think yeah the sort of lack of youth appeal in the whole the idea of a thing aimed at, I guess, um, pre-teens to early teens. I mean, it also had a Grange Hill strip. And at the time, you know, Grange Hill was going through one of its social realist phases. I mean, you've got the whole Zamo storyline. They were dressing um, girl-on-girl bullying with, um, was it Imelda? Yes. Who was going around basically duffing other girls up and the like. Whereas, you know, in this, it was just very much a kind of sort of amiable, bumbling, you know, hijinks, kind of double-deckers meets pleaser kind of level of, you know, social realism and contrast. I think it's mostly famous for, um, it had um, one of its more successful features was a comic strip version of the Tripods, which was obviously BBC's kind of, I guess, pseudo Doctor Who replacement when Doctor Who was going through one of its more troubled periods. Really nice piece, piece of artwork, but of course it's set during that internal gap between episodes where they sort of seem to spend an eternity going great picking in the vineyards of France. <laughs> And it introduced a new character, a female lead who wasn't in the series as well. Yeah, that's right. I think she was called Fozio or something. Tripods really caught some people's, you know, um, imaginations at the time. But I, I think it probably suffered from the fact that if you were going to have a magazine focusing on youth-friendly um, BBC serials, you'd really want Doctor Who as your centrepiece. But of course, you know, that was quite happily at home in Marvel and going for quite a rich period. You know, the Colin Baker years inspired far superior. Um, in Manchester stories in DWM that it really had when Colin Baker got screen time. <laughs> but yeah, it was such a weird comic because I remember, I, th I think it's probably one of those things that, you know, your mum buys your magazine and a bottle of pop when you're off sick. And um, but I think he, I wasn't a very cool kid. I mean, I was only 10, you know. But I think even then I was kind of aware that it was a very sort of square and naff. I mean, I d and I don't think um, the BBC ever sort of dabbled in trying to do a kind of kids thing until um, so fast forward which I think was the kind of 90s, I think it was kind of their attempt to do kind of, kind of looking across the smash hits. But um, and now, you know, obviously worldwide, you know, they're very good at marketing shows through magazines. But Beeb was just such an odd thing because you would, I just don't know who, who, who it was aimed for, really. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is it didn't catch on, it didn't sell, and that's why it didn't last very long. But I do have vague memories of there being a bit of minor controversy about it, because it would always have a viewing guide in it listing, you know, the programmes to watch this week. And EastEnders has only just started, and EastEnders wasn't at that point, even then, really what you should be encouraging children to watch, but it's listed in there. Alongside things like Saturday Superstore and the Sunday Classics version of the Pickwick Papers, I remember them plugging quite heavily as well. It did not sit right there, and there was some minor kerfuffle about that, and I do wonder if that didn't help its chances of success, really. It's only until you actually look back at some of those really early episodes of EastEnders, you realise how kind of, sort of witty and dandy it was, so... That is quite bizarre they would be included in um, Kid Friendly Listings magazine alongside, I don't know, Galloping Galaxies or whatever. Yeah, but they didn't really go in for fun. I mean, my main recollection of Beeb is it reminded me of Why Don't You? It was full of makes and things that were earnest, but not in a sort of Blue Peter earnest way, in a kind of, if you're smart like us, here's how you'll have fun kind of way. And it, it all seemed a bit prescribed, a bit... Afraid to let her down. Well, as I say, one of the features that randomly comes to mind is a feature about Michael Sheard and his pet dogs. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the kind of level of excitement we're talking about here. Well, at least Beeb actually reflected the contents of Children's BBC, even if it didn't do it in that exciting a way. But if you're starting to get into, you know, 60s and 70s music around then, you start to get those cheap compilations that are knocking around. Often they wouldn't really give you that clear a picture of what the artist was actually like. And there was no worse offender, really, than this character. songs by famous 70s stars that you're probably not familiar with that's Boland Zipgum by Mark Boland which would have been the title song for the album Boland Zipgum but it was rejected for not being good enough and really if you've heard that album that is quite a low bar but I mainly know that because bizarrely it wound up on a best of compilation at one point because we're talking about James we're talking about Mark Boland and T-Rex and uh, the uh, deluge, as it were, of um, cheapo compilations that um, were kind of really hard to miss in the mid-80s. I think a lot of them were mainly produced by um, a label everyone would be familiar with who's ever visited a 24-hour car garage or um, service station in the 80s, Pickwick. There is a kind of common theme with some of my choices, and they're all things that I can remember from my formative years of slowly become aware of pop culture, but through things that kind of got it wrong. You could pick up all these cassettes on these mid-price budget labels for like um, 2 99 or something, and um, invariably there would be um, T-Rex compilations. And I'm still fascinated by this, this kind of subgenre of the Mark Boland discography because it goes a lot further than the 80s. And the thing about Mark Boland is he wasn't very good with money and he wasn't very good with business. And so until um, Demon Records kind of absorbed most of his back catalogue in the 90s actually did a proper job of it. All his early work, both the kind of um, the Tyrannosaurus Rex stuff, also the T-Rex 1970-77 stuff, would just be floating around on these really bizarre compilations that had just these mind-bogglingly, fascinatingly random track lists where bona fide hits are kind of rubbing 
the shoulders with um, a lot of B-sides, which is quite exciting because most of my phone's B-sides weren't album tracks and also a lot of random album tracks. While I've got a lot of time for a well-coordinated, tasteful compilation album that takes you through an artist's peaks and troughs and there's some kind of narrative there, there's a lot to be said for the kind of cheerful enthusiasm and complete complete shameless commercialism of these kind of budget compilations. Well, yeah, I remember this really well because I had the very first T-Rex compilation that I had was, I think it was German, and I don't know where I got it from. It's on vinyl, and it was called T-Rex Greatest Hits. Now, it had about four of the actual hits on it. I don't think Children of the Revolution was on it. I don't think Hot Love was on it. I had a couple of tracks from Electric Warrior. Remember, Lee Woman Blues was on there, possibly Rip Off. And the rest of it was tied around the Saurus Rex stuff, like Once Upon the Seas of Abyssinia and Cat Black the Wizard's Hat. I remember sitting there thinking, this isn't what I expected. What's One Inch Rock and where's that come it from? That time. It was really naughty, basically. I mean, it's like, I mean, this goes back to one of the kind of seminal 2X compilations, the recent pleasure of one called Rider White Swan. And it was basically, um, yeah, 14 Tyrannosaurus Rex tracks, and they just stuck Rider White Swan and the B-Side Summertime Blues to top and tail it. Hey, presto, T-Rex in name only. You know, I mean, you can't really say T-Rex and Tyrannosaurus Rex were the same band by any stretch, you know, in terms of feel and style. And, yeah, as you say, it's really disorientating when you're hoping for a bit of hot glamour action. You're getting uh, Mickey Finn on the bongos, you know, wobbling about their pixies and Larry the Lamb. Most peculiar. Well, yeah, they're not the same band, T-Rex and Tyrannosaurus Rex, but they're more accurate to Mark Boland's actual band than what was on the cover of this album, which is a huge photo of him with his Les Paul, like, looming out from the cover. But beneath that was a row of sort of still unidentified men with very 70s moustaches and kind of, like, American football jumpers on and so on, who... I guess they may have been the later lineup of T-Rex, but none of them were recognisable. I don't know who any of them were, and I still don't know. And they're not on any of those songs, I can assure you with that. But I did think, I had the... Was it Polygram did the compilation when 20th Century Boy was a hit after it was in that advert? And I thought of that as that's when they got it right. But I had a look at it the other day. It's got Plateau Skull on it! Which is a, a, a really kind of not that exciting 12-bar blues that I don't know where that actually came from. Oh, well, I can tell you a little about that. That is, um, I mean, it's basically, it's a rip-off of Red House, I guess. And, um, yeah, I mean, as you say, it was 1991. It was 20th Century Boy, which, which got a lot of credit for bringing Mark back into the consciousness, really. Um, that compilation was just in time for the Christmas market. So I think it was one of the first CDs that I bought. It was pretty comprehensive because it's got all of the singles from Deborah right up to um, Soul of My Suit. And then it adds four bonus tracks. And um, that was from, they just started opening up the vaults and they started putting out albums of studio outtakes and sessions. And that was basically a teaser trailer for that, I think is what it was. But uh, it must have been quite a surprise to any newbies coming off the back of Metal Guru. So, yeah, from there on, basically, the reissues started getting it right. I mean, now, I think it's back catalogue has received equal the treatment of um, people like the Beach Boys and Bowie in terms of, you know, you get liner notes, you get bonus tracks, there's, you know, obligatory um, albums of outtakes and alternate takes and, and so forth. And I think it's great because I, I think it's a shame that because of the way his um, material was so shoddily treated by who had it at the time, that he really much languished in the bargain bins of the 80s. I mean, do you remember those glam rock type video compilations that Polygram put out? I've still got them. Yeah, I mean, which again, I think it was usually clips from German shows like, is it uh, Music 
Loudon. Top Pop, the Dutch show. Beat, was Beat Club still going then? There's a couple that look like they're on Beat Club, sort of early sweet ones. I think Jeepster looks like it's from Beat Club. And, you know, and again, like, you know, a great little gateway, but totally random in their selection. And it was, I think it was kind of very much towards the end of the peer part of Glam. I mean, there would be no Bowie or Roxy or Mott, but you'd definitely get things like Sweet and... Um, Gary Glitter and Hello and those sort of bands, you know? That's what I've always loved about glam rock is that there are so many bands where... I mean, there's all those bands that are definitely glam rock and there's about a dozen or so where nobody can ever really decide whether they were or not. Like Argent, like Cockney Rebel, 10CC I see on some compilations. It's really interesting. The Bassy Rollers, people aren't sure whether they qualify as that. I mean, they sound like Yeah, that. I mean, and uh, I guess Bebop Deluxe. Bebop Deluxe, And yeah. um, have you ever heard of a band called Jet? They've got most interesting pedigree because you've got um, Andy Ellison, Mark Bowen's former bandmate from John's Children, and about half of Sparks is back in the band. But it's kind of what I would call sort of football hooligan glam. You know, it's very... Uh, very raucous and insistent and you're going to get your head kicked in tonight kind of glam. There was that craze, wasn't there, for, um, what was it called? Charity shop glam, velvet tin mine, stuff like that. Oh, junk shop glam, yeah. Glitter from the litter bin, it was also called, <laughs> which I really loved as a name. But I should say, as far as I'm concerned, the goodies and wombles were both glam rock because they sounded the part and they were both wearing stupid costumes on top of the pops. So. Yeah, well, I got that wild thing by the goodies. I mean, that's one of the most glam rock signing records ever, production-wise. Well, if you were watching TV in the late 80s and you ever wanted to see bits of the goodies and Mark Bolan, seamless link here, you might have wanted to watch this programme. <laughs> again we brought our rocket lolly ices down here to here to eat mm. it's better than eating them up there well we might have floated away Nancy. in space it's time for us to say goodbye now until tomorrow goodbye, goodbye. Mm. Mm. they're jolly good aren't they would we you do. really like to go to the moon i would yes it'd take a long time though it takes hundreds and hundreds of days and years <laughs> Okay, well that was a clip of Play School covering the moon landing from 1969, but you might have heard a shout at the end, and that shout was the name of this programme. James, what was it? That is Box Pops, or Box Pops to give it its official name. Box Pops is, I guess, a kind of follow-on from Windmill, the clip show that Chris Searle fronted in the mid-80s. Whereas Box Pops didn't have a, it didn't have a Linkman in, in the um, amiable Tom Baker-esque form of Chris Searle. It was kind of like the, the chart show at the time. It was mainly kind of caption, caption links, I believe. And it's, I was obsessed with this program because this was around the time I, I was seriously becoming quite a music and comedy and archive TV nerd. And again, we're talking about a time, I think it runs from 89 to 91, I believe. It's about a time when, you know, repeats of classic stuff were still quite scarce. And it was even quite hard to actually see music videos in full, you know, from begin to end on terrestrial telly. But, Box Pops was a series that would take a theme like, say, class or sport or war or politics or fashion and basically collate a load of clips on that theme, um, music videos, Top of Pops performances, clips from things like Nationwide and a lot, a, a lot of great comedy stuff. I mean, there was things that um, I hadn't seen for years, like from Moody French and Saunders, Victoria Woods seen on TV and a, a lot of Python, it goes without saying. And um, that, sh- that show was just kind of like a revelation to me because uh, it was all, all the sort of things I was fascinated by about telly pop culture all under one roof. Um, I mean, it was called Box Pops because I think originally had the linking device was um, school children probably, talk to, you know, being box popped on whatever the theme of the week 
Oh, it was. Yes, I've forgotten about that. I don't think that format remained for long. Then it just went into text captions, as I say, a bit like, um, you know, chart show kind of format. But um, I, I, I would just uh, tape each episode and then um, compile the best bits onto a kind of edit of my own when I got on the second video recorder. Because, as I said, you know, you have things like things from, like, Python Series 4, which, you know, no one had seen since 1976. You know, Kraftwerk on Tomorrow's World in Autobahn. Yeah, it was just a great clip fest when um, it was really hard to come by these kind of things. I mean, it's kind of YouTube this day in a, in a way, I suppose. And I, yeah, it was just, just a um, great little program. I think on Sunday mornings, about 10 or 11, maybe on BBC Two, very much indebted to Windmill, which I know a lot of people are um, very fond of for the same kind of fact that it had brought up a lot of archive clips under its wing. But I was a bit too young for Windmill. See, I remember Windmill very fondly. That, like you say, was aimed at, well, you can't really say an older audience, but it was a bit more kind of, bit more chummy and genteel in its presentation. It was Chris Searle sort of talking about... Sometimes he would actually talk about the condition the tapes and films were in. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Because it was called Windmill, because it was set, in inverted commas, at Windmill Road, which is the... At that point, that was the main film and VT storage facility. And, like you say, they would have a theme as well, but it was more likely you'd get things like... I remember the very first time I saw anything from Marty, the Marty Feldman show was on there. But it, is, it does underline just how unusual it was the archive stuff back then. I remember getting really excited on one of the very first editions of Box Pops. They had a clip from Captain Zepp, Space Detective. Oh, yeah. Now, that had been on four years previously. And it was yeah. like a, an archaeological find for me. Yeah. So that really underlines it. Yeah, I mean, I think you use the right word, excitement. I mean, yeah, this stuff was kind of gold us. I mean, I don't think... I guess the 90s was probably the golden age of classic TV being rediscovered. You know, I mean, TV Heaven got the ball rolling, BBC 60s Night, TV Hell, things like that, you know. I guess because the kind of people who were fans of that come of age and were able to make these decisions in programming. I mean, the only other place, if you want to try and gather together random clips of shows before your time, you would either have to rely on rock and roll years, which is the only place you could see rock and weekend clips, bizarrely. And, oh, like Teddy Addicts, but more about clips. Was it that's entertainment? Anything that might have a glimpse of um, old telly, you'd just be sitting there hovering with your finger over the pause record button, you know, and getting on your parents' nerves incredibly. But there was also a little-known thing in the late 80s, which was that hardly anyone saw this, because it was on in the afternoons on ITV. So you only saw it if you were off school. But it was a show presented by, of all people, Anne Diamond, called TV Weekly. It's a magazine show about TV, but it was like points of view over half an hour about ITV. And she would talk about things like complaints about adverts and so on. But there was also, in the middle of it, Barry Tuck would come on and they'd talk about an old TV programme. You know, it'd be something like The Golden Shot or something to show clips. One week they had Ace of Wands on it. No way. That astonished me at the time because all I had seen is, I think I'd seen... A fourth generation, probably at least, copy of episode one of The Meddlers. There was a high quality, broadcast quality clip from Ace of Wands on the TV, and Barry Talk talking about it. But TV Weekly has completely fallen through the cracks because, like I say, hardly anyone saw it at the time. If you're talking about um, Ace of Wands and Barry Talk, yes, those are all of my hobbies and interests. But just as a side note, do you know why they were clips things like Rutland Weekend Television in the Rock and Roll years? Well, it was because it was made by the same team from BBC Press who made things like Rutland Weekend Television and the Old Grey Whistle Test with the extra money left over from 
presentation. So obviously they reached for their archives first because they knew what was worth. Well, that makes perfect sense. God, yes, pre- presentation B. I mean, as everyone knows, Whistle Test was filmed there, but yeah, Rotten Weekend as well. Gosh, oh, it seems so obvious now. <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. I'm generally kind of people quite dumb now that Benny's dropped. Yeah, okay, so that's the connecting link, right, get it, yeah. Well, and it gives us another connecting link, because Rutland Weekend Television was, to all intents and purposes, the closest follow-on to Monty Python's Flying Circus, which you're going to hear a bit of now, but in a way you might not previously have normally heard it. Hello, I've come about my newspaper, Bill. Oh, yes, Mr Rogers. <laughs> Morning. Come about the newspaper, Bill. Fine. Would you like to come upstairs? Oh, thank you. Good. I want to cancel the Guardian. Ah, <laughs> oh, good morning. Uh, could I have a copy of the Times, please? Yes, sir. <laughs> thank well, you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> right, well, if you're thinking that dialogue sounds like it sits somewhere between the new gas cooker sketch and the Ministry of Silly Walks, You'd be correct, because that's a linking device from something that I don't think many people have seen. James, what was Monty Python's Montreux special? Montreux Festival was an annual kind of broadcasting and entertainment kind of Eurofest. It was one of those sort of initiatives that everyone joined in, you know, in the 50s onwards. It's not really, I don't even know if it's still going, but it was, I think, for whatever reason, it was a really big deal to the BBC. I mean, um... When the Frost Report won the Golden Rose Award, which is basically the top prize, and that's kind of one of the things that was a major thing on the Python CV when they came back to the BBC in 69, they really hit show that won a European award. And when Python came along, they were asked to enter the Montreux Festival in 71, just after their second series. And um, they did something that was really quite interesting. Marty Feldman's series had entered the year before, and I believe they also won, I don't know if it was Ken Gold or Silver, just by submitting a standard episode that was well-liked. It's probably the one that always gets repeated with the um, coach trip in high speed. It is, yes. yeah, it's that exact it's one. That one. Yeah. The Pythons, they were originally going to put together a kind of mashup of the of two episodes, Full Frontal Nudity and the one with the upper-class twits. Please let that actually be the one that's called the BBC entry for the Zinc Stoat of Budapest. I'm sure it's not, but it would be great if it was. What they did instead was they decided they would do a kind of, I guess you could call it a showreel, by putting together a half-hour episode under the Monty Python's Final Circus banner. It's, it's a fascinating little hybrid in that it is, um, does consist of previously broadcast sketches, but there are news, specially filmed links and, and so forth, and terribly animation. So even though it's a compilation, it just goes to show like just how much Python valued anything they put out under the name back then, um, how times have changed. Because the fact they actually sit down, you know, compiled and shot a kind of mutant version of existing sketches actually works, the half-hour episode. I mean, you've got connective tissue in there through um, reusing the linking device of the, the gas men queuing around the corner. Um, I think the City Walks um, character appears in slow-mo in one of the inserts. And um, that clip you just played is, is a very bizarre, um, unique kind of reversion of the cooker sketch, which originally is from the first episode of the second series. Even in this day and age where if you if you log on to your, your Netflix, you can now watch and stream all 45 episodes of Python, plus the two German shows. But yeah, Montreux is a real odd one because uh, I consider it an episode-ish. It, it's the only one that hasn't appeared on any sort of home video release. And yet, it's actually the most repeated episode of Python, as I say, it was originally broadcast in April 71, 
And this is an interesting fact. Um, the new bits were actually recorded in a slot that was left over from Peter Cook's series Where Do I Sit, which was cancelled. Wow, I didn't know Cancelled after three episodes due to being so bad, as you probably know, um, which Ian Norton was also obviously in charge of. I think one of the sets, one of the links, was actually recycled from that production. It had another rerun during a gap in between seasons, and they dusted it off for a thing called Festival 40 in 1976, which was one of those BBC self-congratulatory anniversary things that roll around five to ten years. But the version that people of my generation would have come across it would have been on the Red Nose Day evening in 88. And you might recall, after all the studio fun um, had come to a close at stupid o'clock in the morning, you had a really lovely triple bill of Not the Minecraft News, the Young Ones episode, and the Python Montrose special. And I was fascinated when I first saw it, because it was at the time you couldn't really get much hard factual information about Python as a series. Before magazines like TV Zones, things started. I mean, I think Spiral Scratch did a partial episode guide written by Clinton Halen, the Dylan biography, which is a bit random. It took a while for me to actually find out what the hell this weird episode was for the first couple of years. But I, I just love it for the fact that they treat it to all intents and purposes like a proper episode. They were like, you know, you have to have linking material. It has to have that the so-called manic flow that a regular episode would get. It's not just a clip fest. In fact, the goodies went one better when they um, were put forward as Montreux. And, of course, they completely remade Kit and Kong for Montreux. And that is the version that is now the official version. Well, it's the only existing exactly, one. Exactly, that's it. The original yeah. one. There are differing stories. Some sources say they cut into the original master, some that they didn't. They reused the studio elements. But whatever happened, the original one is gone. Although they did win the silver, and in the next episode of The Goodies, you can see them painting it gold. I know the Python slipped in a little reference in Series 3, where um, I think they said, um, sorry about Montreux. It is true, that I mean, it's interesting that they treated it are almost a brand new episode in its own right, because I was listening to the other day the Jason Hazley and Joel Morris podcast where they were talking about Contractual Obligation album and talking about this idea that the Pythons seem to have of total comedy where you didn't leave anything untouched, you know, even the the copyright notice on a record to be fiddled with in some comic way. And this is obviously, they clearly, nobody asked them to do new bits for it, you know, they probably, it would have been cheaper for everyone concerned to just hack the best sketches together. But they obviously thought, we're not doing that. We're making it into a new thing. Yeah, and I'll tell you one other interesting about the episode. is during the, um, the City Walk sketch, they actually fixed something that must have been annoying them. Because there's a little exchange between Palin and Cleese in that office in the City Walk sketch that is an alternate take. It's only just like two lines of dialogue. And the fact that they would go in and just put an alternate take because they weren't completely happy with the version in the um, regular episode, you know. And there's a rumour that it might be Harry Shearer doing one of the voices, voiceovers on one of the um, Gilliam animations. It's, it's a real oddity. And, it, and there's also the gateway drug for me realising that there's a lot more to Python than you first realise when you start looking into all these odd bits and bobs they did for European comedy shows and, like you say, all the links and inserts and rogue stuff that surfaces on albums years later, you know, yeah. Um, probably why I've got such admiration from really, it's just that, like you say, that total comedy thing. Well, I'm going to have to dig out an alternate take of our conversation just then, because I'm going to be entering this for the Ben Baker Toffee Crisp Mapper 2018. <laughs> James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Top of the Box by Tim Worthington, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes. More details at timworthington.org.